Welcome to the Emerging Market Retail Podcast. My name is Camilo Mora. And my name is Rafael Escamilla. <laughs> Thank you, Rafa. Well, today we'll be talking about a very interesting topic. I'm referring to uh, the supply chain of nanostores in East Africa. So um, this is a very interesting episode for practitioners, for uh scholars, and for all the people that is interested in knowing more about what's going on in terms of the retail market in the world. So what's the plan for today, Rafa? Yeah, so today we will be talking about the nanostores. Nanostores are these uh, small, independent, and informal retail micro-businesses in emerging markets. They actually control uh, most of the, of the market share in emerging markets, uh, for instance, with shares in India that surpass 90%. Um, in parts of Africa, we also see those those types of shares. Uh, whereas in Latin America, we see m maybe um, slightly over 50% of the market being controlled by these stores. And what's very interesting about these stores is that they are really kind of immersed within the um, local um, communities in emerging markets. And that kind of allows the, the manufacturers to um, serve kind of the, the, the most underdeveloped segments of the population. Um, but that requires um, to have very complex, um, a very complex supply chain in order to uh, manage to get the goods to these stores. Um, mm -hmm. So for instance, one of the big challenges that we observe is you know, in how do you structure your distribution in such a way that you get the products to the store. And there's many different ways in which this can be done. But especially in the more, let's say, underdeveloped areas, what we often see is that shopkeepers themselves um, have to um, kind of transport themselves from their store to a wholesaler, buy these products, and then come back to their store, which is a huge challenge. Um, and of, of course, we also observe challenges on the financial side and on the information side. So perhaps you can tell us a bit about that, Camila. Yeah, I was I was thinking of uh, you know associated to these inefficiencies in the in the logistics in the distribution. Uh, the, there are uh, financial uh, barriers. Right, so these uh, nano stores that are also known as Kirana shops in India, or bodeguitas in Peru, or mercadinhos in Brazil, or tiendas de abarrotes in in Mexico, uh, they don't have access to to credit, to lines of credit, and uh, usually they rely on cash on both ends of the supply chain with the suppliers, of course, and with the customers. So this implies, you know, other inefficiencies in terms of when the suppliers or the distributors go and visit the nanosaurs, they have to, you know, collect cash. And that this is also in terms of security, a huge burden to the agents that visited nanostores. And in addition, well, I think that, that there is a, a huge opportunity in terms of information and uh, digitization um, in this type of, of sector is very low, you know, if we compare this with the modern channel sector, right? So there is a low technology adoption. There are many barriers that we have been studying, by the way. And I think that this topic then it's uh, crucial for all the practitioners and scholars that are interested in knowing more about this. All right. In order to understand from the perspective of a practitioner, we have invited a very successful entrepreneur who has capitalized on these challenges to derive competitive business models in East Africa.
Very good. So uh, welcome back to the Emerging Market Retail Podcast. Uh, today, Daniel Yu is uh, with us. He's the founder and global CEO of Soccer Watch. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Nice. So first, um, could you please tell us or tell our audience about SoccerWatch value proposition? How would you describe it for the different stakeholders in your business model? Absolutely. So SoccerWatch is providing free same-day delivery of essential goods like rice, soap, sugar, you name it, to small mom and pop stores across Africa. And really the problem that we're solving for these shops um, is allowing them to just order products whenever they need to at just the click of a button and get those goods delivered to them as opposed to having to leave their store, travel across town or to an entirely different city to actually buy goods and try to support them back themselves. We also actually provide them with financing to help them grow, um, which is something that these small mom and pop stores previously also did not have access to. Thank you, Daniel. So I was wondering actually whether you could provide some numbers, right? So how big is Soccer Watch at the moment? How many stores are you serving? Uh, and what are the some of the expansion plans for the near future? Currently, Soccer Watch actively serves over 35,000 nanostores uh, across four countries. So Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda. Um, we are actively looking at expanding to other countries in Sub-Saharan Africa um, and also uh, exploring other kind of value-added services that we can offer shops as well beyond just the uh, on-demand ordering delivery and the buy now, pay later financing that we currently offer. Of course. So, so um, in in this um, um, grocery retail sector, uh, where are some of your main competitors then? And and then, what is your main competitive advantage with respect to them? Our primary competitor is definitely the traditional wholesalers uh, mm. in, in the markets. So these would be the uh, small firms that have a garage or a small depot of products that just kind of sit around and wait for all these nano store shopkeepers to come to them. Yeah. Um, and, and so really, you know, when we when we look at what we're doing and the capabilities that we have, uh, obviously, it's, it's, it's quite more advanced than 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 these these traditional wholesalers. I, I think, you know, we're starting to see other companies that have realized the same kind of opportunities to use technology driven distribution uh, to to serve nano stores as well. Though I would actually say, thankfully, in at least in the current markets, the geographies where we operate, um, we don't really have uh, any kind of sizable direct competitors uh, from that perspective. So we've been given uh, a huge amount of uh, momentum and, and, and market to just kind of continue and, and continue to be the market leader. Got it. And and a follow-up questions. Um, because I was wondering, I mean, when you describe Sockwatch, say this is for free. That's uh that's a keyword, mm -hmm. right? This is for yes, free yeah. for the nanostores, of course. But but you have been growing, right? And now I, I imagine that you have more like uh headcount and and how does the growth of your business affect the margin of profits? That's mm -hmm. you know, because now you have warehouses, I, I inferred larger fleet. So how are you tackling these uh, challenges? Great question. So I think that the key thing that we've always focused on with SokoWatch is, is making sure that the unit economics of what we offer are, in fact, quite quite solid and sustainable. Um, and so, you know, you definitely don't want to be in a situation where you're scaling a uh, uh, an e-commerce or an order model where you're losing money on every order. Because what that means, the more orders you have, then the more money you're going to lose. Um, and so I, I think I think for us, the good thing is that we have 
uh, had, in fact, kind of profitable unit economics, you know, kind of um, profit after delivering an order um, for uh, quite a while. And so with that, we felt comfortable kind of scaling up the model and scaling up our infrastructure um, as a, even though as kind of a very fast growing, you know, kind of venture back business, you know, overall as a group, um, we are not yet profitable. However, at that order delivery level, we are. And so that's provided us with the comfort that, hey, we can really push for fast growth. Um, you know, we can continue to offer free delivery to our customers um, and, and still have that work, you know, economically um, as, as we scale. Is it possible for you to drive us a bit through those unit economics? What are some of those drivers? <laughs> um, uh, the the exact numbers, uh, unfortunately, I would say are a bit, a bit of a trade secret right now. But you know, basically, the the model, the revenue model that we operate, right, is that we we source uh, goods directly from manufacturers, um, and then so we, we it's key to know we are operating a first party uh, e-commerce model, right, a one P as opposed to a three P uh, model. Uh, which would be more of your kind of pure play marketplace. And so with the, the kind of first party mo model, we actually have our own warehouses. We have our own logistics network in-house. Um, obviously there are these added costs, um, but the, the key thing is that we also have the direct buying and purchasing power to source from the manufacturer, right? So we're the ones who are actually going to Unilever and saying, okay, next month we're forecasted to need 10,000 boxes of soap. And so, you know, what's the what's the best price we can get on soap, you know, next month per box? And we negotiate, we we put a lock in um, these these procurement, you know, cost of goods, and then um, we're uh, kind of taking those products all the way, uh, you know, from the manufacturer level down to the actual retailer to to the point of sale, and um, typically offering them the goods at the same, if not even cheaper, um, uh, than kind of wholesale price. Um, while also, of course, offering the free same-day delivery. Um, and because of the kind of um, verticalization that we're offering between the manufacturer and the retailer, uh, we're able to, to, to kind of actually still benefit from the margin difference of the kind of cost of goods purchased um, to what we ultimately sell uh, to, the, uh, to the retail. Okay, so, so uh, concerning the expansion, how, how are you like deciding where to go? Right, so that that's I think one of the of the of the cute questions when you are you know uh, running a business you know where to go. This is uh, I know that you are like based in Africa and uh, you know many countries around the world. So so how do you decide that? Great question. So in in terms of our expansion strategy, we started here in Kenya, which mm -hmm. is uh, basically the hub for most uh, businesses regionally within the East Africa. Um, uh, uh, community. And so, so there is, there is in fact, a kind of uh, typical setup that you see with a lot of the manufacturers that we work with, where they'll have their corporate office in Nairobi, uh, but then from that office, they'll cover, uh, you know, five, six, seven countries in the region uh, out, out of that, out of that one HQ or that regional HQ. And so for us, what we found is, with that existing relationship, it's been quite easy to expand to the surrounding countries. And that's why um, we initially went to Tanzania. After that, we went to Rwanda and then um, uh, uh, the, the last country that, that we opened uh, recently was, was Uganda. Um, and that's been a very effective uh, model for us to be able to kind of leverage the, the regional HQ, the regional team to then kind of support our expansion into the local markets, local geographies that they still manage. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, now we're looking at uh, starting to expand our reach with some of these multinationals into other parts of Africa. And that takes a bit more work because you have to establish those relationships and there's different dynamics outside of that. Uh, what I would also say about the East African region specifically is there is this East African community, which is an official uh, kind of um, uh, uh, trade group and kind of government, uh, intergovernment institution um, okay. that actually has a, a customs union um, that, uh, at least in theory, allows for duty-free movement of locally manufactured goods between those countries. In and theory. that's something that's actually, yes, yes. Once again, in theory, a very, very important <laughs> qualification. Um, but, you know, that that's something that allows us to start to do interesting things too, which we've started in terms of uh, we're able to source products from manufacturers in Kenya and actually um, truck them over to our warehouses in Rwanda or Uganda um, and then offer those products um, to the local markets there and being able to kind of drive some of this, um, you know, inter-regional trade um, in order to improve the product selection and the value and the affordability um, for different categories of goods um, has, has been quite powerful as well. Um, so that, that's something that, that we've been doing um, that's, uh, that, that's also helpful within the current uh, group of countries that we're currently active in. So Daniel, from the standpoint of digitization, right, we see that still many of these uh, stores struggle to digitize. Uh, many of their processes are still carried out with pen and paper. Can you tell us a bit about your experience? How have you been able to roll out all those technologies that you're now um, kind of using in this channel to, to serve these stores better? And why do you think other players are unable to do this? Our experience has definitely been one to focus on what is the biggest pain point and what is the um, the minimal, you know, value uh, proposition and kind of product to, to actually drive that behavior change. Because I think if you just go to an nano store and you say, okay, you know, here's a tool to start managing your inventory. Here's a tool to do, you know, point of sales checkout. Here's a tool to, you know, manage your finances. All of these things, as you pointed out, um, they've already been doing for decades just on pencil and paper. And, you know, it's, it's going just fine, right, uh, from, from their perspective. Um, sure, I think it's easy to look at and say, hey, we could optimize this if we had better tools, we have better systems. But that's fundamentally not really a pain point, right? In, 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 in the mind of the nano store, like that's not really a problem that exists day to day. The problem is more around these, these kind of access to goods and financing that I mentioned, which is saying, hey, it's, it's a big pain for me right now as a shopkeeper to have to leave my store once a week, to travel around, buy goods, uh, and then come back. Um, it's a big challenge for me to get financing, working capital, lines of credit, whatever to grow. And so I think we've tried to make that kind of onboarding, that experience, you know, as basic as possible. Um, and, you know, that that's what's really allowed us to, um, you know, grow uh, in, 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 you know, kind of driving customer adoption and expansion to these markets that, you know, haven't previously, um, you know, had these kind of services available before. Uh, and just kind of making the barrier to entry there as 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 low as possible. So, you know, we're able to actually work with customers who don't even have smartphones. Yeah, right. We allow them to place orders via SMS and, and even through call and stuff like that. Um, and so these are the kind of key things that I think we've innovated on to make sure that the barrier to entry for, you know, our, our services as uh, minimal as possible. Right. So um, how do you think that the, the pandemic by the way, has has shifted the priorities for for the different stakeholders in in this context. 
I think the pandemic has definitely supported the growth of our business because it's uh, certainly in the in the initial lockdowns became much more difficult for these nano stores to actually go out and source products directly themselves because there were restrictions mm-hmm. on movement. Um, and so a service like SoCoWatch actually became very, very critical to keeping these stores and these communities supplied with products uh, during during that time. Um, I think for for the suppliers, for the manufacturers, it, it's also really kind of wake, uh, woken them up to the necessity of having digital channels to actually drive distribution as well, because, um, you know, physical uh, retail and especially kind of large format, uh, you know, high, you know, population, people, movement types of places um, just um, become um, more and more, uh, uh, you know, risky uh, during during mm-hmm. those times, and so yeah. uh, making sure that you have you know digital channels to still drive sales um, and and product distribution are critical. Um, and then yeah, I think I think you know also just a general point to the resilience too, and you know for us the financing that we were able to offer to our customers, you know, throughout the pandemic, you know, unlike a lot of digital lenders who you know really kind of cut off a lot of their activity. Um, during that time, we actually kept providing finance. We kept providing, you know, our lines of credit to our shops because we saw that they continue to see stable sales. They continue to see growth. So, you know, I think also for us uniquely, because we had that insight, you know, within our embedded um, uh, model, um, we were able to keep providing uh, a lot of these financial services where other traditional financial players um, had stopped. Back to you, Rafa. Yeah, no. So actually, the question that I was going to ask relates a little bit more to kind of a comparison between uh, organized retail and this traditional uh, uh, retail channel that that you're serving. So how do you think that the unit economics differ, and and how 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 is this channel still surviving in the presence of these organized retailers that you you would expect are more efficient in a sense? That's an interesting question. I think that um, organized retail, um, you know, does benefit from having you know larger footprints and as a result, kind of lower cost per square foot um, when it comes to actually retailing goods. Obviously, um, you know, the organized chains have a significant buying power that they're able to actually exert onto suppliers as well. You know, they're typically able to have direct buying relationships with actual manufacturers too. Um, at the same time, I think there are limits to organized retail, um, especially when it comes to emerging markets. Um, if you if you look at the urban development of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, um, there are only so many malls that you can build and uh, people who are going to be able to come shop at those malls, right? The, the, the This kind of high footprint model um, that requires somebody to, you know, drive a car in to do a week's worth of shopping to then kind of fill up and, and go home. This is just not the average reality for the vast majority of the population here, right? You know, the average African is not going to be owning a car, is not going to be, uh, you know, able to, to purchase, um, you know, a week's worth of goods up front. And so therefore, you know, what they what they need is a, a hyper-local, um, you know, retail uh, storefront where they can get their everyday needs, where they can buy, you know, one bar of soap, you know, 200 grams of rice, whatever, you know, 50 cents a dollar worth of goods, uh, you know, uh, every day, maybe even multiple times a day. 
Um, and I think that kind of need for a hyper-local retail is actually only going to grow as you move forward. I think in general with retail, what you're seeing even in the U.S. and these other places is actually the kind of hyper-local footprint is becoming more and more important. Um, and I think in, in the emerging market context, especially in, in Africa, which is urbanizing faster than anywhere else, um, these kind of hyper-local infrastructures are really key. Now, I think the, the opportunity with um, companies and, 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 and aggregators like Sokowatch um, is to help actually upgrade these hyperlocal shops into more efficient and, and more versatile storefronts where uh, obviously, you know, through us getting on-demand delivery so they don't have to shut down for half a day to go source products and all that is a huge boost to their productivity and their offering. But then even the products and the services they offer are their um, are there are there products are there are there digital tools that can be offered to these stores um, to one improve their own operations so these are things like a point of sale system or inventory management system uh, but then also are there services that the shopkeepers themselves can be given to actually on sell to their consumers right so a lot of the digital finance tools the kind of um, uh, banking that uh, banking agent networks you know, cash and cash out you know click and collect offerings where they can basically utilize their footprint, utilize their hyper-local location um, to then actually offer more and more to their, to, to their uh, nearby community beyond just, you know, selling the rice and the soap. Um, and so I think, you know, there's an opportunity for a big transformation on that front, um, you know, moving forward. And I think players like Sokowatch uh, can in fact be a big part of that because, we can kind of aggregate and optimize these service offerings and then also be a distribution point for pushing out not just the physical products, but also these digital services um, as they're identified uh, and can be kind of integrated into the hyperlocal uh, nano store experience as well. Makes makes a lot of sense. So so what role do you see nano stores playing in, in emerging markets and developing countries within medium and, and, and long term? I think that nano stores are definitely here to stay. Uh, I, I think I think that there's there's not going to be any replacement for the hyper local retail storefront. Um, mm -hmm. I think the services that they offer will evolve and actually increase over time as um, those nano stores start to offer um, the different services that I mentioned. Uh, you know, whether it's click and collect, whether it's uh, you know financial agent services to people in the community, um, and 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 potentially a variety of other things. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're, you're not going to be able to just kind of replace, uh, you know, the hyperlocal nano stores, you know, with kind of larger, farther out malls with bigger footprints that, that's just never going to make sense, uh, you know, for a, a, a rapidly urbanizing population, um, mm -hmm. that is going to be actually only denser and denser, um, as these, as these cities in emerging markets grow. Daniel, could you also tell us a bit about um, some other solutions uh, maybe that you've seen somewhere else that have kind of inspired you to uh, develop these new technological tools that, that are now used in SokoWatch? I think it's interesting. SokoWatch was actually one of the first players globally uh, to, 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 to actually start uh, working on this business model. Um, I think we, we chose to do it in perhaps the most difficult region, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and so, you know, that, uh, that might have uh, resulted in us taking, you know, a bit longer to figure out some of, um, some of these operations. Um, however, I mean, certainly when I look around these days and I see the kind of innovation that, that's happening 
and the other types of models that are out there. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of interesting players. Um, I, I think the models that I'm most interested recently are in the B2B2C space. Um, so companies like Shuhui uh, Tuan in, uh, uh, in China, uh, SHT, that kind of do B2B2C um, uh, grocery and kind of group buying through nano stores as kind of click and collect points, I think is very interesting. Um, there's a company um, that uh, um, that we have shared investors with in Brazil called Facili, uh, that uh, also has kind of similar model B two B two C that I think is quite interesting. And so, yeah, I, I think you know there's 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 all sorts of innovation going on right now, figuring out how to leverage the nano store in different ways, different parts of the the service that's being provided. And um, yeah, I'm I'm just excited to see uh, what uh, what what new concepts and, and companies continue to be built off of that. Okay, Daniel. So, so thank you very much for for sharing uh, your experiences, your knowledge with our audience. Uh, we hope to see more about Soccer Watch in the next years. How you continue, you know, pivoting the business and uh, keep it uh, safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you around. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you all soon as well. So, Professor, we just had an extraordinary conversation with uh, Daniel Liu, um, CEO. Yeah, yeah, really fabulous, and, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he has been uh, innovating in East Africa. And, uh, well, what, what do you take away from, from Sokowat's strategy? What yep. elements should other players seek to replicate in, in other countries, Professor? Yeah, not so trivial to replicate, right? I think, you know, if, if, if you hear him, I think one of the probably biggest accomplishments is that he really understands what's happening on the ground, right? So, so when he was discussing these pain points, he really took it from the perspective of the shopkeeper, looking at where he could add value from the perspective of the shopkeeper. And, and you see that uh, some, some other uh, startups... Uh, in the market, they tend to think much more of what shopkeepers should do, regardless of their pain points, right? But uh, so, so I think I think that's where he really sets himself apart, also also as a, as a character and as as the experience he has developed. If you look at the business model, um, I think there are a couple of interesting elements uh, there. So 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 one is uh, leveraging the the buying power. So they. They do take ownership of the goods, and that uh, allows Sokowatch to actually uh, also take part of the margin. This is not unique. I, th uh, I think uh, this was developed first in China under the Ling Xiaotong, the Alibaba uh, brand, who started this uh, some years ago. And there are a couple of other uh, companies that do that in East Asia. Uh, in Latin America, I haven't seen that around yet, right? It requires obviously much more investment. It requires also a longer term focus. I think that the second element that's uh, relevant is um, uh, that they serve the stores uh, directly. Um, so this really takes away this pain point of stores not having to go to a wholesaler, right? And that in um, in some markets, maybe a bit more difficult to replicate because manufacturers 
for instance, in many places in, in Latin America and also in North Africa, what I've seen is manufacturers tend to go directly, definitely the large manufacturers. So that implies the value proposition there needs to be much more towards the manufacturer to really take over that role, which really changes the, the business proposition quite a, quite a bit. I think the third element is something he didn't mention, uh, but I think is actually one of the, the key, let's say, USPs of the Sokowatch business proposition, and that is that they do two-hour delivery. Right. So, so when a shopkeeper places an order, they will get delivered within two hours. And this dramatically simplifies the mental accounting that shopkeepers need to do as compared to, to other models. Uh, let's say where when suppliers uh, deliver directly, typically they would place orders today for tomorrow or today for two days later. And this requires a considerable mental accounting to take place in terms of what the need is how to manage the cash flow, et cetera. So uh, I, I think this element is actually also quite, quite critical. And, and, and by the way, very difficult to implement, right? So this implies they, need, they will need uh, multiple depots in a city like, uh, like Nairobi, uh, having uh, relatively small vans. Uh, they have this, uh, these, these tuk-tuk type of uh, delivery vehicles, relatively small vehicles, where they can uh, run quick rotations. Professor, what extensions do you see for Sokowatch's business model? You should have asked this, you should have asked this question to Daniel, right? So uh, <laughs> I, I think that they're really well on the way and that there's still quite a bit of scaling that they can do. And, and there are huge, in, in their business model, because they take ownership of the of the goods, there are huge economies of scale possible, right? So I think with the current business model, they can still grow uh, a lot. Um, as, as Daniel mentioned, they've also been giving trade credit. I think that that arm uh, is, is likely to, to grow fast, right? Because uh, once they have, uh, they, they have lots of detailed data on individual shopkeepers, so that allows them also to, um, to determine where it's worthwhile giving the, the trade credit. It also will give opportunities to at least partially go cashless. And as we have seen in our research, there are potentially uh, huge benefits uh, there. I, I, I think the other element, because they grow, they grow direct, and also with some of the research that that we have been uh, doing um, on the modeling side is to show if you go direct rather than waiting for shopkeepers to place their orders at wholesalers, it actually uh, increases sales more rapidly. So market growth is also uh, increasing. So, so in that sense, even with the current uh, model that they have and now bringing also the trade credit in, I can see quite a bit of growth. Further growth, probably in leveraging the data right? All the data that they have from the shops, I think this offers huge opportunities and I'm, I'm sure they have uh, the plans already uh, there. Thank you, Professor. Um, and thank you for, for sharing your, as always, your knowledge, your experience and your insights, uh, because this makes this show even better.
This podcast is brought to you by Tilburg University.